Hello and welcome to episode 211 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the actress Natasha Colzan. We get to sit down and talk about her amazing performance in the brand new TV adaptation of the incredible game Halo. This is a great interview and Natasha is so honest from start to finish. We get to delve deep all about what made her want to get into the world of acting and so much more. And that interview will be coming up in just a couple of moments time. I always like to use the intro of each and every episode of Mark and Me to touch base and talk about my previous episode. On episode 210, I was joined by Connie from the amazing band See You Space Cowboy. This was a very open and honest conversation, one of the most detailed and I think just harsh realities of interviews that I've done and the feedback was amazing. I've seen so many people go and check out the band now and fall in love and that for me is the biggest compliment of podcasting. So thanks everyone that tuned into that interview and again a massive thanks for Connie for coming on the show. But today it's all about Natasha and acting and so much more so I think the best thing to do is to get straight to it. So here's me and Natasha talking all things TV and film. Natasha, thanks for taking the time to join me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thanks for having me. What I like to do, Natasha, is for the listeners out there that might be discovering your work for the first time, is give them an idea of how you basically got to be the person you are today. So let's take it right back to the very start. Uh, Maybe when you were growing up, can you remember certain films or TV shows or performances from actors that made you fall in love with the idea of being an actor yourself? Um, hmm. I remember doing, <laughs> I remember performing for my parents, um, doing, do you remember the National Lottery was like a thing that you used to watch on a Saturday night? Every time like, at like quarter to seven <laughs> at night and you're like, oh, I missed to go to the news agent it, in time. It was like an event, wasn't it? Yeah. And they did some performances, I'm pretty sure, like halfway. So I used to um, just perform for my parents. Just, it's quite sad really when you think about it, isn't it? Just like this lone child in the living room. <laughs> Performing. They were probably like, oh, God, give it a rest. Every Saturday as well, without fail. <laughs> Every Saturday. Um, but in terms of performances, I don't know. I think I just loved performing myself. I think there's like an escapism maybe that I quite enjoy. Yeah. I don't know necessarily if I saw someone else and thought that's what I want to do. I think at school, I just, doing drama during school was such an outlet. Like I loved it. Loved being another character. Um, probably feeling emotions that I didn't allow myself to feel in real life. But even during those school days when obviously I used to love performing arts one of the most, it was always the time that I was like, oh, I haven't got to sit with a pen and do loads of work. It felt creative. It felt good. Can you remember at that point ever thinking to yourself, hopefully I can make a kind of career out of this or, you know, was it just a dream at that point or did you think there could be some reality to it? No, I didn't think there could be reality to it. I grew up in Hastings, so... Um, there wasn't we weren't connected to anyone in the industry it wasn't I didn't know how it it was feasible and I remember at college I was studying drama um, A level and it got to the towards the end when you're doing you know your second year of A levels and you're like okay got to look forward to university now what am I going to do and I started looking at drama schools and drama schools at that time in 2004 you couldn't get a student loan you had to pay the fees up front in cash. And we just, I, my family don't have money. So no. that was like, oh, okay. That that was the only route I knew 
as well. It was like, oh, that's what actors do. They go to drama school. Like, I didn't know that you could just up sticks and move to London and maybe give it a go. And I don't know if I had the confidence really to do that at the time anyway. So that kind of put paid to the idea, actually. And then I decided that I would just pursue other loves. And one of those was writing um, and journalism, which is what I ended up doing for a few years. So how did it come back around that? Obviously, I know you've been doing shorts around sort of five years ago and got back into it that way. But how did it come about? Because were your family then, obviously, if you're saying, mum, dad, can I have £5,000 cash to do this? And they're like, no. Were they then trying to talk you, you know, around not doing it? And like, look, you need to get a real job. You need to settle down and do something different. Or were they still hoping you could do it, but maybe not by asking them for thousands of pounds a year? No, do you know what? My parents have always been quite hands-off, but very encouraging. So they'll never try and, they didn't go to uni. So they didn't, they weren't sort of switched on and with that kind of stuff. They were very much just like, you do what you want to do, do what makes you happy and we'll support you in that, but we, we can't financially support you. So they were always supportive, but they couldn't. They, and they were always there. Like, I, I'm so grateful for my family and the fact that my parents were always there physically like in presence rather yeah. than, you know, they, they didn't have money, but they, they've always been there encouraging me. And I'm so grateful for that. And I think, yeah, just sort of, it was my decision really. I think I put, I was, I decided, okay, it's elitist, it's, it's closed off, it's not for the likes of me. So I need to think about what I'm going to do next. And like, I need to put that to one side. And I did for years. And I went to, I went to uni, I dropped out, I asked around, I went back to uni, also far asked around. <laughs> and then I, finally graduated at 25 and started working doing um internships I'd got an internship at the FT and then another internship at a travel magazine Condé Nast Traveller and then started working as a, a kind of freelance journalist not really sure where in the industry I was gonna head or land um ended up being a news reporter online news reporter for a few years and then I just got kind of bored of it yeah and then I, I just, I don't know, I think there was that thing inside me that was always like, you haven't really given the other thing a go yet. Yeah. And, like, and I, in that time from 18 to 25 and sort of in my late 20s as well, I, I just kind of ignored it. I kind of suppressed it. And I didn't even look out for, you know, Amdram or anything like that. I think I was just like, no, right, now I'm doing something else now. And then... When I left journalism, I went to a homelessness charity um, and switched into PR. I did sort of like my um, comms and marketing for this homelessness charity for about a year and a half. And whilst I was there, I started modeling randomly. And I was in quite a lot of debt. And the modeling, that kind of started to snowball towards my late 20s. And I ended up sort of getting a bit of money um, from one job that was quite well paid and I put that money on some of my debt but then I also put it on some acting lessons and I thought okay because you know at the time in your late 20s when you think I'm I'm old (laughs) and you're like 28 you've got this warped sense of being old because you're approaching your 30s and you're like well okay as soon as I hit 30 that's like doom you know that's when I fall off the cliff and can never you know everything ends yeah (laughs) life ends at 30 
And you think that you you were supposed to have it all sorted by 30, that you'd have the career, you'd have the family, you'd have the flat or the house. And then you get to 30 and you're like, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I'm nearly four. I, I've just been 40 and I've just gone through the whole motions again of like, I thought I should have settled down by now and have this and have that. <laughs> so probably I'll be still thinking it in when I'm nearly 50. So I don't think it ever stops. No, I don't think it stops either. And I, I try and say that to my nieces now. I'm like, I'm very honest with them about the fact that we don't know what we're doing. Like no. we, no one knows what they're doing. They're just fucking winging it all exactly. the time. Everyone's full of shit. And I wish I had kind of had more of an understanding of that when I was younger, because you just, you know, the pressure's real, isn't it? When you're, when you're younger, you put all this pressure on yourself to, right, I've got to get good at my exams and now I've got to get a job and then I've got to be in this career forever. And sort of towards my late 20s I just thought okay it's now or never which yeah. looking back in hindsight is a ridiculous notion because something like acting you can do at any time and you know obviously if you're going to train for to be an Olympic sprinter then yeah, yeah. maybe cut off but with everything else I'm like so behind you know the, the proponent that you that you can do anything at any time and especially now so i put money on acting lessons um didn't really think it would go anywhere it was just more like let's just let me just try it because I don't even know if I still like it I don't know if I'd be any good and then I started doing that and it kind of snowballed as well um, so I, I saw that you had a number of shorts um which were only like sort of five years ago um and is that kind of your first introduction of how the whole thing works as a production, how you see how a producer works, a director, and how it is really different than just dreaming of being becoming an actress. Yeah, that was really helpful, actually. I think because I didn't go to an established drama school, you know, that's usually the route, you know, you go to Lambda Rada. But because I was 30 and had bills and whatnot, I, and I couldn't really afford to go back and do an MA or whatever, um, because again, you know, you, you have to pay for it. I think you get student loan now, but I just didn't want to take even yeah. more fucking student loan, which I'm still paying off. My Me too. One. It's the worst. Every time I get paid, I'm like, ugh, like, was it worth <laughs> it? Those hangovers, like now, 20 years <laughs> later, they're not worth it. Yeah, it was like Freshers Week worth yeah. it. Yeah, no, it wasn't. No. It's haunting me now, and now a Freshers Week would just probably kill me, the exhaustion from it. So now I'm like, oh, why are you still punishing me every month, reminding me? Literally, I just think we're taking it to the grave now. Like, yeah. I don't think we're going to be getting rid of that anytime no. soon. So, um, yeah. So then I one thing led to another. And so not going to drama school, that was, I guess, a little bit of a, a hurdle in terms of getting agents and training. And I, I, I saw doing short films and fringe theatre as part of my training, yeah. I guess. Because um, especially fringe theatre, like, it's not paid really it's profit share and you get about 30 quid at the end but it the the training that you get from that is just it's priceless of, it's priceless yeah the, the networking um it's just on the job training basically and it's it's really handy. that's the way i think the best way to learn is you know sometimes you could sit there and like do guitar lessons and learn all the textbooks and buy all the books or you could go on youtube and watch someone and just actually learn yourself and i think yeah. the practicality of getting your hands dirty going on sets 
seeing how everything works, never saying no to anything, always getting involved in all this. I've, I've heard many stories from many actors and directors, and it is the best way. And the, those lessons you learn from people that are in the industry that do it every day it beats any textbook out there in the world. Yeah, definitely. And especially when you're starting out, I think it's really hard to suddenly demand, especially if you haven't gone to drama school as well, to be like, right, I'm a paid actor now. Yeah. You kind of got to prove yourself a little bit, and you've got to, you know, you've, you've got to get a show reel together so you kind of need to do those short films to get the footage and one of the big breakthroughs when you look at your imdb page or your career so far to date obviously you've still got years ahead you know what else is around but to get to work in you know men in black international it's not a huge part but the fact is you got to be involved in this huge production you got to see these big stars and how a production is run on a big budget and i suppose everything was on a, a whole other level to stuff like your shorts for dreams sam good grief all those sort of ones this is a big step up yeah. so was that a bit daunting and terrifying were you like oh my god like i was not quite ready for this you know what um i so before when i was doing my actor training i was also doing extra work and i was an extra on star wars um episode eight i think it was and a couple of other big productions yeah that actually prepared me for that role so being an extra, seeing a set of that magnitude with all the extras, the props, you know, all the crew, that actually having been on those sets as an extra in a, such a low risk environment where you're not expected to do anything apart from, you know, do what the second AD tells you to do. Don't, and don't look at the camera. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Um, and that that prepared me so that when I was on that set, I actually recognised a few of the other extras from the extra work that I'd done before. Oh, and it felt cool. familiar. It was really yeah. weird. Like, okay, now I, I know what's happening here. I know, you know, when they're shouting, right, okay, first positions. And it was less daunting. But it was daunting nevertheless because it was Men in Black and I love Men in Black. Yeah, they growing were, up, there were those films that were just, oh. Oh, just great. Just great for everyone. The whole family can watch those and enjoy them. Uh, I've still got, I think, the Men in Black theme tune on my um, on my playlist on Spotify. My main Amazing. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously from there you did more TV work, but the main one now, and this must be the most fun, the most exciting, is Halo. You know, as a kid for me growing up on the Xbox, I'm not sure if you were ever a gamer or you may have been around gamers, but Halo was the game that everyone talked about. So when everyone talked about this becoming a TV series, there was a lot of kind of, oh, is it going to work? Is it been too, you know, but the production team behind it, all the brains that go into it have done it justice and everyone's loving it. But how did it come about for you to get involved in such an established, incredible TV series? It was amazing. Um, so I auditioned um, along with a bunch of other tall actresses. Um, and yeah, I think they must have had a whole squad of like, netball players or something um, <laughs> <laughs> in the waiting room but they um yeah I auditioned um and had a it was the audition itself actually was quite phenomenal because I, I was in the room with two exec producers Otto and Toby and before we even did the audition I we just chatted for about 20 minutes about the role in fact the first question he asked me was um what does it mean to be a Spartan and that I think could throw you if you hadn't done your research. Yeah. <laughs> and as, a, as the journalist in me, it goes deep on the research. So um, I was quite prepared and yeah, and then got the role. And then from that point, it was 
like all steam ahead, full steam ahead with um, training and research and looking at Halo, looking at Spartans, preparing to be a Spartan um, physically. Was it quite demanding physically with the regime that you had to go through to get into that? Was it like five days a week working out really kind of hard, hard work? Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. Um, I wasn't fit, I wouldn't say, before I got the job. And uh, when Otto called to offer me the role, he wanted, to, as well as offering me the role, I think he kind of wanted to preface it with, this is going to be really hard and are yeah. you okay with that? But obviously, you know, as a new actor, I'm like, please take my blood, sign me up. Like, I'll do anything. So um, I was like, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, and it was in the end, but I did have a kind of like realisation of, okay, I now need to... Uh, embrace fitness in a way that I'd never done before because I just hated the gym I hated fitness as a culture and then I had to do a, a 180 <laughs> and how was that because I would be like even though I want this job even though it's going to be amazing for my CV my career it's going to open mm -hmm. some doors I cannot be asked to get up and do start running or going on a, a <laughs> treadmill. I'm, like, I'm all right, thanks. Like, I'll, I'll my research will be sit at home, eat crisps, and play Halo. Yeah, exactly. And that was some of my research and yes. reading the novels. But um, do you know what drove me? I think it was fear above yeah. everything else. Like, it wasn't the love of it. It was like, oh, I'm really worried that they're going to see that I'm shit and then chuck me off the production or something. So that fear was enough to get me in the gym. And um, that's, yeah, then I started, I started immediately, as soon as I got the role, I next week started with a PT. Um, and then a couple of months before we started filming series one, they got a sort of um, trainer in for us and me, Kate and Bentley, and th the three Spartans of Silver team, aside from Master Chief, we would meet in a CrossFit in East London three times a week as well and do some CrossFit. <laughs> For two months before we went and we had a boot camp in but we flew over for specifically for a boot camp in budapest that's amazing um, and learn about military tactics and weaponry and some shooting and yeah it was kind of all encompassing the training so talk to me about when you're actually on set though so you've done all this training you've done all this your body's prepared you're like oh my god this has been hell of a journey but we're ready we're going on to set how was it? Was it just how you imagined or were you kind of like still a bit like starstruck in the way of, God, this is huge. This is yeah. this is such a big deal. This isn't just a short. This is a huge production. There's big companies, there's investors, there's going to be massive directors. And I know that the scale of this is on another level. Yeah, that you, you definitely feel that pressure when you see it because the, the scope of the show, the production values are just incredible. And you walk on those sets, you know, and so much of it was real. Yeah. You know, I think there was a concerted effort to have as little CGI, I suppose, as possible. Um, they wanted a lot of the sets to be very real and and, and our costume as well. Our, our armour, I think, weighed about 35 kilos. So Christ. really, in terms of the training, it wasn't just to have the physicality of a Spartan. It was to also, as Natasha be able to handle that fucking armor, which was next level. It was hot and claustrophobic and tight. 
And when we first put it on, it was a bit kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to survive yeah. nine months of this, which actually ended up being two years because of COVID. But um, after a while, I think you do get sort of muscle memory with it. So it was, it was fine with the costume after a while. But yeah, sort of being in there and having... The pre- not pressure but you know you're you're excited that you're excited and nervous because you want to you want to make people proud as well the fans yeah. you like halo fans you want to you kind of want to do right by them and being involved in this and while you're on set and you're you know you're working with these incredible people that have got so much talent what was your biggest learning kind of thing from it what was the thing you took away that you really kind of maybe didn't know or you may have taken for granted until you got on set was there something that you took away that you thought Either I wasn't ready for that or I've really learned something from this that when I go and do future roles, I can take this with me. This is yeah. so valuable. I think um, learning my value as an actor, I think there's a, a mentality that you have as a new actor, which is you're so grateful to be given the role that you kind of go in there a little bit cap in hand and a little bit kind of not wanting to antagonize, not wanting to you know, go, oh, I don't think this is right. But I think what this show kind of showed me, and especially with Pablo's leadership, was that you can as an actor, and actually it's your job to. So if you see something or feel something, you bring it up, like, and that's absolutely fine. Like you're not being annoying. You're not being an annoying actor. Obviously you could do it all the time and maybe, but if you really feel quite deeply about something in the script or with your characterization of the character or whatever it is. Um, and actually I took that forward because I got a role after we wrapped and they're in something else. And there was an instance there where I, which I would never have done before, but I had the confidence, I guess, to go, oh, I don't think that character would say that. Is, can, is, can we reword it? And they just went, right, yeah, that's fine. Just take it out. And that was quite phenomenal. I, I think a realization for me as, as a sort of like actor that's coming up and doing new things. And with COVID, like you said, it went from a, a nine-month project to over two years with everything that stopped and production. And, you know, it's, it's it's awful, but it seems like we're over the worst now and stuff's coming yeah. back back to normal a little bit. And there's a bit more reality in the world where we can do things again. Um, how is it now that, you know, Series 1's wrapped up? What's your kind of next sort of, what we've got left, nearly seven months of the year? What, what are we kind of looking at for your next few steps have you got stuff lined up already are you already sorting for halo season two is there yeah i've just i'm in the middle of filming a small role for a bbc dramedy um so i've got a couple of days shooting next week for that um and yeah and then halo season two has been greenlit so that'll all start getting ready and I guess we'll just wait and see what happens. And also because Halo's not come out in England yet. Yeah. So that needs to happen. And that's coming out June the 22nd. So that'll be, it feels, yeah, kind of mad that it's come out in, in America and Canada and a couple of other territories, but hasn't in my home country yet. It'll be interesting seeing the, the reaction here as well. And a lot of listeners um, for the Mark and Me podcast are people that want to get into the industry. So that's why I have such a range of guests. So I might have writers, producers, directors, people in bands, all different kind of walks of life. For yourself that you are in the early stages of your career, you still have years ahead of you and I'm sure you don't want to pack in the pack you know i'm sure you don't want to go anywhere anywhere soon i think you kind of <laughs> stick around yeah retire after season two yeah 
I want to um, do something in the next couple of years, probably. <laughs> but, but because it's such a hard world to get into, and you've talked about today the kind of approaching it, then taking a step back, and then going back again. What advice do you give to people that want to become like yourself and be an actor? Um, because it is such a hard world, isn't it, for people to kind of make a name for yourself in the industry? Like you said, if you mm-hmm. haven't been given the best drama schools there, you're not going to have a name for yourself if you haven't gone for the best education you're not but for yourself you've done it by hard work and determination I think um I think it's sheer bloody mindedness maybe I think it's a nice (laughs) Um, way of putting it (laughs) it's I think there's so much luck involved um also I'm really tall I'm six one so I think the pre Game of Thrones I don't know if I would have been seen for much I think there would have been very much like a like dearth of roles the industry has changed a bit now where it's kind of opening up I guess or at least being a little bit more open-minded yeah to the notion of different body types and whatnot um and for me I think oh it's so hard though isn't it because everyone everyone works really hard to try and make a name for themselves it's so hard to determine why one person gets a role and one doesn't or achieves more than another or it's so it's hard to quantify isn't it so um, so if you're looking at it as I, know, I understand the pressure of answering that because it's it's so yeah. difficult and everyone has a different story but is there maybe something you'd have done differently then if you look back in hindsight now there's you... something that I'm really um thankful for which um like looking back in hindsight in terms of my approach to things which is that I'm I'm okay with being shit <laughs> in the beginning and I think sometimes a lot of people or actors can put pressure on themselves to be very good very quickly yeah and and if they haven't succeeded in a certain amount of time it's you know and I think if you can take the pressure off yourself and allow yourself to just learn and and allow yourself to be a bit crap in the beginning then, and, and have that open-mindedness and try to create luck for yourself by taking classes, by doing fringe theatre and short films, meeting people and just bettering your craft and doing that and concentrating on your craft. I think that will hopefully open doors. Um, but then I guess a lot of people do do that anyway. It's so tough, isn't it? It's okay to be shit. That's a good message. It's okay to be shit. Yeah. All shit, aren't we, really, ultimately? But, um, yeah, I guess taking the pressure off. I have friends, creative friends, who I think, like a filmmaker friend of mine, who um, I think in his mind he wants to create something epic as his first feature. And I kept saying to him, why are you putting that pressure on you? You're going to need to crowdfund, you know, tens of thousands of pounds. Like you need to just make lots of things, small, inconsequential things. Yeah. Like out of your system, get good at making shit things and then go on to the big thing. But it was almost like that pressure to, to have to suddenly create this, like your best work. Yeah. Bring out the Godfather for your debut or Lord of the Rings or something. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. And that's okay. Like, not done well like that no because eventually you will get to do lord of the rings but you've got to do all the other stuff first yeah yeah so the little body steps i think 
And and something we do on the podcast, and this is my final question, uh, I know you've listened to an episode today, so you might be prepared, but what I do is I ask the guest that comes on the podcast to choose the outro piece of music. So it can be a song by any band, uh, a piece of music that you just love. But once we've wrapped up today's interview, it's all edited and it goes out there for the world to listen to. Listen to. What would be your perfect song that just means so much to you that when I ask you the question, even though there's billions of songs out there, it's the <laughs> one that you love the most that you think would be ideal for our episode we've done today? Um, so I had thought about this because I have listened to your Brandon Boyd episodes and I would like Otis Redding, A Change Is Gonna Come. What a great um, song. I, I, and I love Otis Redding's version. I love yeah. Sanford's version as well, of course, but Otis's version is heartbreaking for me. And it's the one song that still makes me cry. And it means a lot. I don't know. It used to be, my parents used to play a lot of like old soul and funk and stuff in the house. And we listened to a lot of Otis Redding and that song just always got me. Um, and yeah, I, I love it so much. I know what happened now. I'll end up editing this, then listening to stuff like My Girl Again and sitting on the dock oh. of the bay and go through all the songs and then have this whole period of just listening solidly to Otis Redding for the next six months. And it'd be like, oh, this always happens with the podcast. Oh, do you? Yeah. Do you end up going through the... the yeah, I'm not listening to Otis Redding for probably about five years, unless it's on like, you know, uh, Smooth FM when I'm driving or something. It just oddly throws <laughs> up. I'll show my age. Um but you know what I mean that's when I listen to one of those songs I'm gonna be like oh god I love this guy's oh. voice is unreal you're not listening to like Kerrang anymore or anything like that I that? do but it's um I don't know I'm I'm in that era where I never wanted to sound like a granddad who's always like oh back in my day but I find that I go back and listen to the bands I love so yeah, bands like Queens good. of the Stone Age and Pearl Jam, oh. so all these bands. I, I keep going back to them because I love them. So anyone that comes along now, I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry, you're not the Foo Fighters, you're not exactly. Green Day, you know, so it doesn't doesn't feel as good. Well, that's it, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Foo, Foo Fighters and Chili's were my bands growing yeah. up. And uh, I saw Slipknot when I was 16. That was my first gig. Wow. <laughs> in in uh, Brighton. That's an insane first gig. I mean, one of the best live bands I've ever seen in my life. It's not just a music concert. It's a production. They're all in their suits. There's nine of them running around on stage causing absolute chaos. But it's an experience. And unless you see it, I don't think people should say a bad word about Slipknot because they are performers. Yeah, exactly. And I haven't been in a... No, the last time I was in a mosh pit was a few years ago at Primavera with Idols. Oh, that Idols are incredible. Yeah, insane and I, i've only seen them there at primavera but i'd love to see them like they're supporting Hall. pearl jam in july um so i'm like okay that's a, a win-win yeah and it they they were such an incredible performer that they when we were there we were actually just walking past the stage by accident and we were like oh should we just wait here and see who's on and then idols came on and we were all blown away never heard them before that's the best way to fall them. in love with a band isn't it Oh, insane. Yeah, just, yeah, incredible. And so now I'm like, yeah, love it. Amazing. Natasha, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Mark and Me podcast. I've really enjoyed today. I hope our paths meet again and we get you back on maybe for season two or whatever else comes about. But honestly, your time today has been much appreciated and I've loved every minute of it. Oh, no, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it too. 
So there it is. There's my interview with me and the amazing Natasha Colzan. It was so good to sit down and talk to Natasha and her be so honest and so open about the industry, the way it works and getting into film and TV. It was such a great chat, so much energy and I felt like we just hit it off straight away. So thanks for Natasha for coming on the show. And if you haven't yet, check out the amazing TV series Halo which we discussed in great detail on that interview. It's on Paramount Plus right now and it is phenomenal. Please, if you go and check it out, check out Natasha's performance and let me know what you think. This podcast survives by you guys at home retweeting, sharing these episodes and putting them on your Facebook and Instagram, or just telling your friends about how much you love the podcast. If you really enjoyed today's episode, just hop on to markandme.com, because on there there's links to the Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram account. On there you can share the episodes and it costs you absolutely nothing, but makes a huge difference to Mark and me. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please retweet the episode, share it on your wall on Facebook or post it on your stories on Instagram. It really can go a huge way for Mark and me and means the absolute world to me. And the podcast cannot survive without my Patreon. Each and every month, people sign up on there and have exclusive prizes thanks to the guys at Richer Sounds. But not only that, the money that you donate goes right back into the podcast, allows me to go to events, festivals, gigs, movie premieres and conduct these interviews, which means more and more interviews for you guys at home. You can do this for as little as £1 every month. And at the moment, you're guaranteed a minimum of two episodes each and every week. Seriously, I really need the support and if you're listening now and have enjoyed today, it's just like buying me a coffee or a Mars bar. It really is that cheap, but the more people that get behind me allows me to record more and more. So please, the support is so appreciated. I'll be back in only a few days time with a brand new episode. So until then, look after yourself, watch the TV series of Halo, take care and I'll speak to you all very soon.
It's been a 